Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. The focus of our attention in the Word today is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You may want to have that open in front of you or in a Bible app. Uh, it'll also be on the screen. Let me read the passage before we talk about it together. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, when you go for a job interview, the one doing the interviewing is going to want to know if you have the right qualifications for that job. Uh, so the story is told of an interviewer who once said to a job candidate, we're looking for someone responsible. To which the applicant said, well, then I'm the guy you want because at my last job, whenever anything went wrong, they said I was responsible. Another interviewer said to a job candidate, how long were you in your last position? To which the candidate replied, I'd say my biggest weakness is my listening skills. <laughs> Takes a while. <laughs> Recruiter asked the candidate, why do you have such high expectations for a salary when you have no experience in the field? To which the applicant responded, well, the job is much harder when you don't know what you're doing. These uh, last two are for our king of bad puns, Pastor Ken. Uh, why did the elephant get rejected for the job? Because his qualifications were irrelevant. Why did the koala get the job? Because she had all the right qualifications. Job qualifications. It's very important to know that you've got the right ones. When my son Josh was in college, he went to apply for a job at the local Lowe's store, and at our encouragement, we encouraged him to dress up just a little bit to make a good impression for the HR guy there, and so he dressed in nice slacks, a dress shirt, and a tie, brought in his job application, was sitting there in the waiting room, waiting to be interviewed, and across from him was another young man about his age who had bedhead hair dirty jeans and a hoodie, and he was kind of slouched down in the chair. 
As the interviewer came out to take in the next candidate, the store manager walked by. He pointed at Josh and said, if that guy can put two sentences together, hire him. It helps to know you have the right qualifications. It's, if that's true in the workplace, uh, how much more important is it in the church? In the workplace, your chances for getting employed and staying employed depend on you having the right qualifications. But in the church, when it comes to church, the souls of the people you lead will be at stake. More rides on the qualifications of church leaders than perhaps any other job. So Paul's message to Timothy here in chapter 3 is, when it comes to the church, choose your leaders well. This comes right on the heels of Paul saying that when the church is gathered in public, uh, public worship, women should not teach or exercise authority over men. And we talked last time about how men whom God ordains to be elders in the church are the ones who are to declare God's word with authority in that setting. And if anyone finds that hard to swallow, Paul takes up next what kind of men those elders should be, who should fill that role. And Paul's point is not that anyone can fill that role, but there are qualifications that must be met. And the bar is set pretty high. These are qualifications that have more to do with the man's character than with his skills or experience. They are characteristics that every believer should aspire to have, but those who lead the church should exemplify them. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, and he's saying to the church at Ephesus, if you want to avoid abuses of power, if you want leaders who can lead others to Jesus, look for men with these qualifications. And that's exactly what we do here at Bayside Chapel. We go through an extensive process before we put anybody's name before the congregation to be affirmed as an elder. It usually starts by appealing to the members of the church to say, help us discern who God might be calling to be an elder. And we do that by way of making available a nomination process form that gives all the qualifications of eldership as explained in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. We list every qualification and give a, a definition of what those things mean. And then we say, you know, take this, pray over it. If, you, if anybody comes to mind that you think fits these qualifications, then we encourage you to submit your suggestions of who we should be considering for elder. The elders take all that input. We usually get you know, 10 or 12 or so names, and we will uh, discuss those names. We will pray over them. We'll look at that individual to see, is this somebody who's already serving in the church? What's their track record of service? Are they somebody who is already doing the work of elder? Are they kind of natural shepherds taking care of shepherding some group within the church, maybe a small group or a, a class or some ministry that they're involved in? Uh, and then, you know, we look at the qualifications. Do they meet the qualifications in scripture? Uh, we'll have conversations with that individual. We might interview him as a whole, as, as the whole group of elders. Uh, we will ask him to consider becoming an elder, to pray over it for a couple of weeks, to have conversations with his spouse, because if his wife is not in agreement, then he shouldn't be an elder. And, and only when all the elders are in agreement, we have 100% agreement, do we bring anybody's name before the congregation to be affirmed as an elder. And we are blessed with our current elders. We have 13 of them. Four of us are pastors, and the other nine go by the title elder, but pastors and elders really 
are one in the same office. It's just that those of us who have the title pastor do our eldering full-time, if you will. And so in addition to myself, we have Pastor Ken and Pastor Joe and Pastor James. And then our elder, other elders include Sam Doncaster, uh, Paul Margell, uh, and then we have Andrew Weber, who gave the announcements this morning, Joe Guyberson, and Ken Oakes. And then finally, we have John McGinnis, Daryl Padula, Chris Yaks, and Steve Gala. These are the current elders of Bayside Chapel. These are men who are qualified. They have been tested, and they are serving you well. And not only is it important for us to weigh these qualifications whenever we call men to become elders, but it's especially important in this season of our life together as a church as we consider who will be our next lead pastor, because whoever that is must also meet these qualifications. Choose your leaders well, Paul is telling us. And by giving us the necessary qualifications of elder here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he helps us to do that. And so Paul begins in the chapter by saying, this, is, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now you say, well, he's talking about overseers here. Where do you get elder from this? Well, there are three words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably to describe the same office, the, that of those who are ultimately responsible for the leadership of the church. Sometimes they're called overseer, which means they oversee the, the ministry of the church. Sometimes they're called elder, which speaks to their spiritual maturity. And sometimes they're called pastor, which again speaks to the work they do. They are shepherds. Uh, they are there to oversee the flock, feeding for, caring for, leading, and protecting God's flock. Paul says if anyone aspires to be an overseer, elder, pastor, he desires to engage in a work that is noble or excellent. So good on you if that's something you aspire to do, if you've, if you've set your heart on that work. But not everyone should do that work, but rather only those who are truly qualified. So here are the qualifications you need. And these are the qualifications we need to look for as we choose those who would lead us, or perhaps better to say, these are the qualifications we should look for as we seek to identify the men God has called to lead his church. And there are 15 of these qualifications, so buckle up. We're going to go through them kind of quickly. Uh, we'll put them in three groups that might make things easier. We're going to talk about virtues an elder must possess, excesses he must avoid, and tests he must pass. Let's begin with the virtues an elder must possess. There are seven of them, seven virtues an elder must possess, and you'll find these in verse 2, where he says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. An elder must be above reproach, he says. That means an elder must be blameless or of good report. There should be no grounds of this man... Uh, or no accusations of improper behavior. He's deserving of the good reputation he has. There's no obvious defect of character in his past or present life. It's not that he's perfect, but that when his name comes up in conversation, people usually have good things to say, not accusations or memories of past scandals. He's above reproach. Next, he's a husband of one wife. Uh, literally, he's a one-woman man. Uh, he's not involved with other women. He's loyal to the wife he has. Now, there's some disagreement among scholars as to if this might also include 
uh, people who have been married, uh, have been divorced and remarried, does that disqualify them because now they've had more than one wife? Or if somebody was even a widower and remarried, are they disqualified? And, and we don't think that's what Paul is saying. The way we interpret it, we take it to mean he is loyal to the wife he has. If a man is flirtatious or otherwise not treating his wife well, he should not be considered for leadership in this way. That doesn't mean that elders are perfect husbands. If you ever want to make my wife gag, just tell her how lucky she is to be married to a perfect man like me, and she will tell you right quick that I put my pants on one leg at a time like everyone else, and she would be right to tell you that. We're not expecting the men who serve as elders to be perfect husbands or to have perfect marriages, but they had better be loyal to their wives and committed to their marriages. In one church where I served, we were this close to inviting a man to become an elder of that church. He appeared to meet all the qualifications as far as we could see. He was deeply involved in the life of the church. He had a great track record of service. He was already acting like a shepherd. He was caring for an adult Bible fellowship that he led. But one of our elders in that final meeting, before we recommended his name to go before the congregation, the oldest of our elders, a godly name, guy named Creed, said, you know what, I just don't feel right about this. There's something in me that says we shouldn't be doing this. And we said, all right, Creed, you know, if that's how you feel, we've always said that we have to be in unanimous agreement before we put someone's name forward. So we're going to back off from this and, and we won't move ahead at, at this time. If you change your mind, let us know. But uh, we backed away from nominating him, and it was a good thing we did because we found out about three weeks later that he was having an affair with a woman in the church. It, he, you know, that God put that check in the, in the spirit of our a godly elder saved us all from a lot of trouble. An elder must be a one-woman man, husband of one wife. Uh, the third virtue he must have is he must be sober-minded or temperate. It means he is self-controlled, he's clear-headed, he's not given to extremes. Uh, again, self-controlled, he, he's prudent, he's sensible, he's wise, he exercises balanced judgment. He's not given to quick or superficial decisions based on immature thinking, but rather he exercises sound judgment. He's respectable, it means he lives an orderly life, he demonstrates good behavior, he's well-behaved, his lifestyle uh, makes the gospel attractive. So one of the th ways that you might sum up these last three qualifications, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, is to say that he's wise. Elders should be the kind of man you would go to for advice because you can see the wise and sensible way he lives his life in Christ. Uh, virtue number six, he must be hospitable. Literally, he is a lover of strangers. Uh, he is unselfish and willing to use his material blessings with others. His home life is characterized by hospitality. He's devoted to the welfare of others. It's often pointed out that this was especially important in the first century when you didn't have hotels that you could readily check into when you were traveling. So Christians, as they traveled from one place to another, were dependent upon the hospitality of believers from city to city. And so... It said that this was especially important in the first century, but isn't it important today as well? I love what uh, Max Lucado says about it. He says, hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. It's no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to and have the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you are sending 
the message, you matter to me and to God. You may think you're just saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth the effort. An elder must be hospitable. And the seventh virtue that an elder must have is that he must be able to teach, able to communicate the truth of God's word to others. Whether he has the gift of teaching or not, he is able to instruct others from the scripture. And this is important because though the pastors here do most all of the preaching at Bayside, we are accountable to the other elders for what we preach. The elders have to be knowledgeable enough in the word to guard against error in the pulpit or anywhere else in the church for that matter, because part of the work of the elder is to protect the flock from error. From time to time, they'll be called upon to study doctrinal issues and decide where we stand as a church, and they have done that work with excellence in the last couple of years. And quite often, they will teach classes themselves because part of the elder's work is to feed the flock, and so an elder must be able to teach So Paul says there are these seven virtues that an elder must possess, but then he goes on to say there are also four excesses that an elder must avoid. Those excesses are discussed in verse 3, where he says that an elder must be not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Four excesses to avoid. An elder must not be a drunkard, not given too much wine, not addicted to wine, not given to drunkenness. This is important because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we ought to be not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, which leads to wasteful living, but rather be filled with the Spirit. As Christians, we're to live under the influence of God's Spirit, not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. A person under the influence of alcohol or drugs is not able to live under the influence of God's Spirit as he should. And so one who is given to drunkenness is not going to make a good shepherd. If the shepherd is always getting drunk or high, he can't be doing a good job feeding, leading, protecting, or otherwise caring for the sheep. So an elder must not be a drunkard. Further, he says, not violent, but gentle. Not pugnacious, not given to fighting, uh, not given to verbal or physical violence, not a bully, but rather should be characterized instead by forbearance, by gentleness and tenderness, patient, kind, and gracious. You know, I imagine there are few things scarier to sheep than when the shepherd screams at them and beats them. Shepherds lead sheep instead of driving them, and that requires gentleness. Bullies need not apply. A shepherd An elder must be not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, and then not quarrelsome. He must be uncontentious, not given to quarreling and selfish argumentation. You know, among our elders, we value hearing different perspectives and points of view, but we always discuss things with mutual respect. Points get made, and sometimes strongly so, but without quarreling, without contentiousness. But I have seen some pastors in particular who just seem to love a fight. You know, they were were quarrelsome. It seems like, you know, whenever somebody would say black, they would say white. Whenever somebody would say up, they'd say down. They just always like to take the contrary point of view for the sake of being contrarian. Uh, They would stubbornly argue for their point of view, unwilling to relent until they got their way, until they won the argument. 
Well, it shouldn't have come as a surprise when those pastors got fired because they had disqualified themselves by their quarrelsomeness. An elder should not be quarrelsome and he should not be a lover of money, Paul goes on to say. He should be free from the love of money. Why? Well, because a lover of money might, like Judas, help himself to what's in the offering basket. A lover of money will never have the right priorities because, as Jesus put it, you can't love both God and money. A lover of money is likely to get into all kinds of trouble because, again, as the scripture says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Those who lead God's flock should not be lovers of money. Have you seen this Instagram site called Preachers and Sneakers? It was started by an average church-going guy in Texas named Ben Kirby, who, you know, spent some time watching YouTube videos of worship leaders and famous preachers, and he began to notice that some of these guys really wore some expensive sneakers. And he did a little digging because he kind of, you know, liked expensive sneakers himself, but could never afford them. And he found out that, you know, some of these guys were wearing sneakers worth $800, $1,200 a pair. And then he really started paying attention, and he would go, you know, on these YouTube videos, and, and then he would take still shots of them and post them on his site, and he would do some research into the fashions these guys were wearing, and he just put up the price tag of, you know, how much their sneakers were, how much their, their garments were. And, and within a, a month of doing this, he got 100,000 followers on Instagram. In an interview for the Washington Post, he questioned the blatant extravagance of someone preaching about Jesus. He said, I began asking, how much is too much? Is it okay to get rich off of preaching about Jesus? Is it okay to be making twice as much as the median income of your congregation? And, and he kept uh, kind of researching and posting, and he uh, compiled, for instance, some examples of what some of these religious leaders were photographed wearing. Gucci slippers for $1,100. Jordan 1 Retro High Dior sneakers, I don't even know what that is, $7,210 a pair. Another one was photographed wearing something called Supreme X Louis V Jacquard Denim Parka for $9,625. Another was wearing a Christian Louboutin belt bag for $1,250. And another wearing a Stefano Ricci belt just a belt for $2,541. Well, me, I'm sporting today <laughs> Nunbush loafers from Kohl's for maybe 70 bucks. You know, I, I joke, but really, an elder must not be a lover of money. That's one of the excesses an overseer must avoid. Paul says there are Seven virtues an elder must possess. There are four excesses an elder must avoid. And then he concludes by saying there are three tests an elder must pass. Three tests an elder must pass. The first test is, is his family life healthy? Is his family life healthy? This is verses four and five, where he says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In other words, his kids behave without him losing his cool all the time, yelling and screaming and, and abusing them, uh, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how 
Will he care for God's church? This is an argument from lesser to the greater. If you can't control your own family, if you can't, if you can't manage your own family well, how in the world can you be expected to manage the church well? Now, this doesn't mean that elders are perfect fathers. It's to say that if a, an elder still has children in the home, their respect for him will be a pretty good indicator of how likely he is to be respected by the congregation. If your family life isn't healthy, you should be spending your time there, not in attempting to lead the church, which is one of the reasons we always want to know that a wife is supportive of her husband being an elder, because if the wife is saying, oh, things aren't great at home, then that man should not be serving as an elder until things are straightened out there. As someone has put it, your spiritual leadership begins at home. In dealing with the family, remember that you have been blessed, not beatified. Don't expect your wife to stop asking you to carry out the garbage. Is his family life healthy? The next test, is he a new believer? Uh, in verse 6, it says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. When it says he should not be a new believer, it means literally he should not be newly planted. He's not a neophyte in the faith. He's, he's been around long enough to have some maturity. Uh, because if someone is too new in the faith and he becomes an elder, Paul says the fear is that he might get a big head about himself. He might think he's all that and, and think he's something special. And remember, pride is what got Satan into trouble and brought God's condemnation down on him. So don't put a new believer at risk by tempting him to be proud. Uh, and then test number three. Does he have a good reputation with those outside the church? Does he have a good reputation with those outside the church? Verse seven says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What do people outside the church think of him? Unbelievers should also respect his character and his integrity. When it talks about the snare of the devil here, it may have to do with how the devil may lay a trap for church leaders whose reputation inside the church is great, but is known for living another kind of life in the world. Like the pastor in Colorado back in 2006 who brought shame on the megachurch he founded when he was accused in the community of soliciting a male prostitute and buying drugs from him. When you consider someone from church, for church leadership, it needs to be asked, what is this man's reputation outside the church? In a church I once knew, there was a leader who liked to think that he was revered by the congregation, a paragon of Christian virtue, a legalist of first order who thought it was his job to keep everybody else in line, following the rules. Uh, he was a builder, and he had built dozens of homes in that city, but among realtors, to say that a house was a Thomas Johnson house was code for this house is shabbily built. This builder is known to cut corners. He may have been one of the church's biggest givers, but his reputation outside the church should have disqualified him for church membership. You know, I've been deeply involved in church for all my life. I have seen the, the bad and ugly side of churches as well as the good and beautiful in church life. And here's the factor I think that makes the biggest difference. 
In some churches, leaders were chosen rather casually. You know, it's November and we've got to have guys on the ballot, so who are we going to get to serve this year? And it's done hurriedly and and, uh, you know, if you were a good businessman or a big giver or a buddy of the pastor or just a longtime church member, you were likely to be voted onto the board of that church. And one of those churches split into factions that turned into a huge church fight that ultimately resulted in a bruising church split. In two others of those churches, I saw leaders grab for power that made life difficult for their pastors leading three really fine pastors to resign in frustration. But in two of the churches I've been associated with, leaders were chosen carefully and prayerfully with great attention to the qualifications Paul lays down in this passage. And the leaders of those churches looked a lot like Jesus, and they acted a lot like Jesus, and they led a lot like Jesus, and the result was years of stability and unity and growth and ministry effectiveness. I saw it for 23 years at Grace Point Church in Newtown, Pennsylvania, and I've been privileged to watch it here at Bayside for the last 12. May Bayside always be a church that chooses its leaders carefully examining them for the seven virtues they must possess, the four excesses they must avoid, and the three tests they must pass. And you might say, well, why go to all that trouble? Why? Because what is at stake are the very souls of those they lead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the practicality of your word and the guidance it gives us in something so important as considering who should lead us as a church. Lord, we thank you for the, the way that we have been blessed over these years to watch leaders get raised up who meet these qualifications and, and to see the excellent godly way that they have led. And Lord, especially in this season as we're considering who will be our next lead pastor and realizing the importance of that individual too meeting these qualifications, we pray now that you would, that you would guide and direct in such a way that our next lead pastor would be so qualified. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to guard the, the process here at Bayside such that that we would always give great care and attention to the qualifications of those who lead. Lord, we pray that as we are obedient to follow you in these things, that you will continue to bless us with unity and harmony and ministry effectiveness because ultimately we want Jesus to be glorified, to have him be lifted up before this community and to see people drawn to him in whose name we pray. Amen.